Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. Quite an exciting subject ahead of us today. Um, so I'm beyond elated to share with you what I intend to share with you. I'm sure some of you were, yeah, some of you were here for that lecture I gave a couple of weeks ago called, You Are Already Enlightened, Let Me Show You. This to talk tonight is a continuation of that lecture. And what we're going to talk about tonight is, you do not need to heal. Let me show you. There's a few nuances between this lecture and the last. But before I, you know, present these five arguments that hopefully will definitively prove that you do not need any healing, let's first revisit some of what we covered in the previous lecture. So in the talk, you do not, uh, what is it? You are already enlightened. Let me show you. I wanted to share with you a fundamental insight of this tradition. Welcome, Austin. You look good. I love the goatee. (laughs) I wanted to share with you a fundamental insight from the Advaita Vedanta tradition. And that insight is this. You are already, at your very essence, enlightened. You are perfection. You are already in attainment. The work of Advaita Vedanta, or the work of this philosophical system, is not to add anything onto you that you are currently missing. It's not to give you something that you don't already have. The work is only to make it apparent to you that you have this thing. So the best way I know how to present this insight is with two very well-known parables. So I thought I would start with that today. Now, the first parable is the washerman's donkey parable. It's one of the most beloved stories in this tradition. And it goes something like this. There is a washerman. Uh, In India, we have this uh, profession, very noble and very old profession. It's called dobi. And some of the Indians in the room know that Dobi is someone who comes to your house with a big cloth and puts all of your dirty clothes in the cloth, wraps it up, hauls it over the shoulder, gets on a donkey and goes to the river to wash all the clothes. And at the end of the day, the Dobi comes and gives the clothes back to everybody. And usually with a little bit of tax, you know, they usually take one or two socks. And uh, that's the job of the Dobi. (laughs) So... In this story, a washerman was going to the river with his donkey and with all of his clothes. Now, often the dobi lives on the wages daily. So if the dobi doesn't do the job that day, uh, the dobi's family doesn't eat that day. So it's very important that the dobi carries out his or her job. So in our story, our dobi is going to the river, carrying all the clothes and is with the donkey. Lo and behold, the dobi forgot the rope to tie the donkey. Now, this is quite the tragedy for the dobi because without the rope, he wouldn't be able to tie the donkey. And if he can't tie the donkey to the tree, then he can't go out into the river to do his job. So either he doesn't do his job, which will be a disaster, or he does his job and risk the donkey running away. And he cannot afford another donkey. So if that donkey runs away, that is the end of his career. (laughs) So what will the dobi do? You know, and he's there, he's fretting about it, he's feeling so upset, and of course a stranger walks by and he says, please help me, stranger. Here is my dilemma, and he explains. And the stranger says, oh, I got you. This is very simple, here's what you do. You take the donkey to the tree, and you make a show of tying the donkey up. Make sure the donkey can see you. In the donkey's sight, pretend, go through the motions of tying the donkey to the tree, but make sure it sees you. The man says, okay, that seems simple enough. Uh, I'll give it a try. You know, so he goes to the tree. He makes this whole show of tying the donkey and he does it. No rope, of course. He makes the, makes the pretense that there's a rope. And then he starts to back away. One step, two steps. Slowly, he's backing away. And the donkey doesn't seem to be running. The donkey's sitting there chewing the grass perfectly still. The dobi thinks this might just work. So the man goes into the river and he starts to wash his first few clothes. But all the while, he's looking over his shoulder. You know, he's not sure. He's looking over his shoulder. And every time he looks, the donkey is there, grazing happily, 
completely still, as if the donkey was tied. Okay, seems to have been uh, uh, saved, you know, the Dobi is saved. So at the end of the day, the Dobi finishes with all of his clothes. He goes back to the donkey, jumps on the donkey, very satisfied with the day's work. And he says, hut, hut. But the donkey doesn't move. Oh, now we have a problem. And he smacks the donkey's ass and he says, hut, hut. But the donkey won't move. And no matter what he does, he waves a treat in front of the donkey. He beats the donkey with a stick. He does everything he knows how to do, but the donkey won't move. Now there's great distress. So the Dobie man runs back into the village, searches far and wide, looking for the man who gave him this advice. He finds the man and he says, you've doomed me. Your advice was great. Uh, the donkey didn't run, but now I have a new problem. The donkey won't move. <laughs> and the man laughed at him and said, do not distress, brother. Here's what you do. It's very simple. You go back to the donkey and you make a show of untying the rope. Make sure the donkey sees you and then it will move. <laughs> so the Dobie, of course, goes back, unties the donkey, makes a pretense of doing so, and they're off happily. Okay, this story captures very beautifully what the work of this philosophy is. You seem to feel bound. You know, so your perceptual experience of the world is you are separate from the things around you, except for occasional moments, you know, during a little acid trip or at the rave, you know, except for occasional moments, your general experience of life is as a separate self, um, and you're often oppressed by that. There are things in the world that genuinely, so you believe, threaten you, and there are things that you genuinely crave because you believe that they will make you better or that they will somehow improve your experience of life. This we call bondage, the feeling of isolation from the world around you. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about suffering today. But generally, this is the donkey tied to a tree. Are you actually bound, though? In the donkey's case, the donkey felt itself to be bound, but there was no rope there. However, in order to change your perceptual experience, you must go through the motions, as it were, of untethering the donkey of your mind and body. <laughs> so all this work that we do, all the asana, or the, all the pranayama, all the meditation, all the philosophy, it's just a fiction. You know, it's going through the motions to free yourself from a bondage that you were never bound in. You know, you're escaping a prison that never existed except as an error in perception. Do you see? There is no rope to get rid of, no tree to escape. It is just your perception that we need to change. So this is a startling insight. This means some of you will very likely walk away from tonight's discussion completely enlightened. Why? Because it doesn't take any work to have this insight. It only takes that one moment of insight. Now, the work that you have ahead of you upon achieving this insight is to integrate it into your body and mind. So the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, famously said, um, enlightenment is the beginning. He said, Nirvana is the beginning of your journey, not the end. Mm. Another parable. Today, I think we're going to be a little heavy on the parables. Because what I hope to share is incredibly subtle, but once you get it, you get it. It's like seeing a trick image, you know. Once you see the sailboat, you'll always see the sailboat. <laughs> now, this next parable is interesting. The same washerman. So this is the washerman's jewel parable. I don't know why this tradition likes dobies a lot. Now, the washerman's jewel parable. One day, a washerman was cleaning the clothes and he uncovered in the river a jewel, a diamond. And he, he had the diamond in his hand and he thought, what, what is this? You know, he's a washerman. He's never encountered such a thing before. He has the insight that it's valuable, but he doesn't quite know its value, nor does he know what it's for. You know, so the first instinct that he has is, I'm going to wash my clothes with it. <laughs> and you might think this is quite funny, you know, the washerman washing his clothes with the diamond. But that's what he does with it for a little while. And one day, a stranger is walking on the road and sees him washing clothes with a diamond and says, Toe, washerman, what are, you, what are you doing? That thing that you have there is incredibly valuable. And he says, yeah, I, I kind of had that sense. I just don't know what its value is. And the stranger says, 
Yeah, I also don't know. I've never quite seen it before, but it looks pretty. Maybe you should go to the market and ask someone else. They might be able to help you. So the man says, okay, that's what I'll do. That day he goes to the village and he looks around and he asks the vegetable seller, how much is my jewel worth? The vegetable seller sees it. And, you know, of course, being not himself an expert in uh, in, in jewels, the vegetable seller says, looks, uh, looks pricey. I tell you what, I will trade you a bushel of carrots for it. Uh, now for the washerman, this is quite a landfall. A bushel of carrots is quite a lot, you know, and it will go a long way for the washerman and his family. But somehow the washerman knows it's not really worth that. It's worth more. So the washerman says respectfully, I'm going to take my jewel and, and keep looking. And so he declines the trade, thankfully, and he continues to go. And finally, he finds a jewel merchant. And the jewel merchant says, Thank God you didn't trade this jewel for a bushel of um, carrots because what you have, good sir, is worth the whole town, if not the city. This is the most valuable jewel I've ever seen. And of course, the washerman now realized he was abundantly rich beyond his wildest dreams and he never wanted for anything again. Okay, in this story, the washerman never got the jewel. He always had it. He just didn't know what he had. Similarly, you have this jewel. This uh, money, you know, like, oh, money, padme home. You have the jewel in the lotus. It's there in your heart and it doesn't need to be given to you. So no one can give you this thing. It's yours already. The only thing you're here for is to perhaps learn what it's worth. You know, so the yogi is an expert in consciousness. The yogi, like the jewel seller, is just here to teach you that you are already abundantly rich beyond your wildest dreams. <laughs> okay. So that's what we talked about in our previous lecture. You are already enlightened, let me show you. And we gave you a few arguments to at once understand this. And all it takes is one insight. But then again, saying that all it takes is one insight is a little bit of a misnomer because as you know, that one insight, if it's just an intellectual insight, it won't really do it for you. You know, so in that class, I gave you, I think about three arguments. And those arguments were designed to prove to you here and now this insight, the truth of your being. It isn't promising you something in the afterlife. It isn't telling you you need to do a certain amount of meditation in order to see for yourself. It's making the very dramatic and radical claim that right now, if you follow the reasoning of this argument, it will point you to a truth that will free you from bondage, that will at once sever the illusory rope by which you feel yourself to be bound. It's a big promise, yes. And some of you have heard the arguments. And after all this promising, nothing happened. You're like, Nish, I get it. I'm not the body. I'm not the mind. But after the lecture, I suffered. I felt myself still to be separate. I woke up the next morning and got into a huge fight with my wife. Where did all this Vedanta go? You know, it didn't do what it was supposed to do. I, I, I got it. I understood what you were trying to say. I just didn't feel unbounded by it. Okay, to that we say you only understood it on an intellectual level. When I say an insight, I mean you need to internalize this insight to the very fibers of your being. So it's not enough to just believe in what I'm going to tell you today. You know, beliefs are the worst thing in this business. Honestly, like the last thing you want is to fill your head with beliefs because they don't do it for you. You know, beliefs are, um, they're never going to uh, feed you. <laughs> so it's not a belief that you want. It's a firsthand, direct, immediate experience of this truth that you can have through one insight. But an intellectual understanding alone is not enough. So Swami Vivekananda, he used to give these talks, you know, and he had this retreat somewhere in New York and he would give these talks. And um, there's one man used to come, and this was in America. So his American students would come. And the man would say, ah, I understand you, Swami. The argument is so simple. All of your lectures are the same. You're just showing me that I am Brahman. I am the absolute. I am not the body and the mind. I am the absolute. And Swami Vivekananda would say, yes, yes, you've understood me perfectly. That's exactly it. And then he used to have these dinners. Swami Vivekananda used to cook for his disciples. And he would have these dinners. And this guy, this gentleman used to come late sometimes. So whenever he walked into the kitchen, Swami Vivekananda would say very humorously, ah, there comes Brahman himself. There comes the absolute. <laughs> 
<laughs> you like to poke fun at people like that, you know? So if you really feel yourself to be Brahmin and someone cuts you off in traffic and you start to cuss and shout and get upset, you can imagine Swami Vivekananda laughing at you saying, ah, there is the absolute. <laughs> so if you think you have understood this, this, these arguments, now I'll give you five today. If you think you've understood them, the test is as follows. If you have truly understood them, three things should happen to you. The first is you should become fearless. You know, you should know to the very core of your being that nothing exists separate from you that could possibly harm you. You know, so you will understand truly that there is nothing to fear. So there should come upon you a great feeling of relaxation. You should become incredibly relaxed. That's the first thing. You are fearless. The second thing is you become intensely loving. Because you realize that only one thing exists, awareness itself, and everything that you see, namely other people, other beings, chairs, um, dog poop in the park, all of that is within you. So you must, as a consequence of this insight, become all-inclusive. You know, and so this creates in you a feeling of deep love, and it's not even just the love of one person to another. Even that love is quite limited. It's that deep, inclusive love of recognizing that everyone is contained within this awareness. And the final thing it should give to you is intense creativity. Because naturally, from re relaxed fearlessness, from loving, enlivening awareness, there comes a creative surge. And uh, you will engage yourself in some kind of work, but you will not be doing the work. The mind and the body will be doing the work. Whatever your work is, maybe you're a cobbler and you're making shoes. Maybe you're a musician and you're playing jazz clubs. Maybe you're lecturing on Zoom. Whatever the work is, the work happens effortlessly. And you just sit and enjoy it all. You know, because you realize yourself to be the awareness. So these are the three ways you know without doubt that you have internalized this. And it's, this is the process. You know, so it does take one insight, but there is some work to integrate that insight. So today I hope again to convey that insight to you in five arguments. But today's lecture is called, um, you do not need to heal. And the reason I, I want to call it that is because we currently live in a new age community that peddles this idea that you are somehow broken. And now you need to pay $500 for a weekend retreat in order to fix you. There is something lacking in you. And now you must give me all your money in order for me to give it to you. Maybe it's a mantra. Maybe you need to pay a couple of hundred dollars for a special potentized mantra. You know, I recently saw on Instagram an ad for an ayahuasca retreat. And the ad said, healing is a never ending journey. I'm like, why would you want that? Why would you pay money to go to a workshop that tells you they'll never do it for you? <laughs> yes. And you know what? This narrative that you are broken and now need to pay a certain amount of money in order to not be broken is a narrative that's been around for a while. It's kind of the fundamental premise of most advertising. You know, you see an ad and someone's got like hair um, that attracts friends to them and gives them opportunities. And unless you have hair like them, you're never going to enjoy the life that they enjoy. At least that's what the uh, ad tells you. So now go out and buy the shampoo. You know, so, and this is, this is just a marketing strategy. No hard feelings, no conspiracy theory. No one's out to get you. It's not evil or malevolent. It's just a marketing strategy. You know, forgive them. They know not what they do. But this marketing strategy exists in advertising. It exists in the exoteric religions. You know, you're born in sin and you're broken and now you need to pay your tithes and be a good member of the church. And then, you know, maybe, maybe Jesus loves you, but maybe he'll love you more. I don't know, but it's also permeated the yoga community. So now we're all engaged in this quest for healing, for growth. Advaita Vedanta is here to definitively um, say, no, you are not here to heal. You are not here to grow. And today I'm going to give you a slightly subtle argument to show you why that's not possible. Because the opposite of ignorance is not action. The opposite of ignorance is knowledge. So no amount of action will remove the ignorance that keeps you in bondage. Okay, so before I give you the five arguments, how do these arguments work? So bondage, essentially, let's consider it suffering. To suffer is to experience something you don't want to be experiencing. So you might think there are two forms of suffering, suffering in the body or physical suffering and suffering in the mind 
or mental anguish. Uh, let's challenge that. I would say there isn't two kinds of suffering. There is only one kind of suffering. And that suffering is just the feeling of this shouldn't be happening to me. Whether it's pain in the body or grief in the mind, that pain and that grief itself is not the suffering. That is just the raw sensation that arises. The suffering is when you superimpose onto the sensation, the judgment, this ought to not be happening to me. You know, so all suffering, let's just say up here at the top of the lecture, all suffering is an internal attribution about an event. And let me, let me kind of motivate why this is true. You all know if you go to Disneyland or let's say you go to the best vacation in the world, you're in Cancun, you know, beautiful beaches, sipping margaritas, um, everyone's really nice to you, it's perfect blue skies, but you have a debilitating cold, you know, runny nose, cough. I think the vacation would suck. It doesn't matter how paradis parad paradisiacal, it doesn't matter how much of a paradise you're in, your personal experience of that paradise is a hell because every day you're sneezing and sniffling and you can't really enjoy anything. You know, so obviously, no matter what your external setting is, something internal ultimately dictates how you will experience that internal external environment. The world is full of horror stories of millionaires who are suffering acutely. Despite having relatively trim physiques, Armani-clad shoulders um, in, you know, penthouses, there is still a great deal of grief, suffering, tragedy. And I, I work in a private school, so I see quite a bit of it in the PTA meetings. <laughs> mm. But yes, and... The inverse is also true. There are situations of horrific tragedy in which people seem to find lots of meaning and joy. So Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning is an excellent example as to how even Auschwitz and Dachau is not inherently horrifying. Viktor Frankl goes on to argue in that book that there is the ability to make meaning even in the darkest of human instances. And to some extent, Camus, in his myth of Sisyphus, argues the same point. Sisyphus is cursed by the gods to eternally roll a rock up a hill. Sounds a lot like corporate America. <laughs> just kidding. But you're rolling this rock and Sisyphus for eternity has to just roll this damn rock. But Camus says it doesn't have to be suffering because while the gods can force Sisyphus to push the rock, they cannot force him to make uh, suffering out of it. He still has the freedom in his mind to attribute to that that event, what he wants to attribute. So Camus makes the final argument that man is always free, man, woman, and person is always free to assign meaning to what is happening. So Sisyphus can redefine his experience as meaningful. He can think, he can philosophize. You know, so even in that situation where you're determined for an eternity to push a rock up a hill, it doesn't have to be suffering. Okay, thus far, we can conclude that suffering is not in the world. It's in how you see the world. So necessarily then, if I am able to change the way you see the world, in one fell swoop, we can end all suffering. And how can we do that? We don't have to change the way you see a situation. You know, if you uh, something has gone wrong in your life, let's say um, somebody broke up with you. You'll go out with your mates, you know, and you'll grab a drink and you'll talk about that. And usually you'll bitch about the person. Yeah, he wasn't good for you anyway. And your friends will try to help you see that situation in a different way. And if you see it in a different way, maybe that will alleviate some of the suffering. Yes. Now, what if you were able to see once and for all that you are not the mind and you are not the body? If you were able to do that, then categorically all things that happen in the body and mind are reframed repackaged and no longer experienced as suffering because they are no longer experienced as happening to you. Now, some of you might think this sounds a little bit like dissociation. Don't worry. Towards the end of the lecture, we'll prove to you why it's not. All right, that's the work. So the point of these five arguments that I'm about to offer is to once and for all show you right now and right here that you are not the mind, nor are you the body. You are, in fact, something much more wonderful something much more fulfilling. So if dis-ease comes to the body, if anguish or grief comes to the mind, if death comes to the personality, what does it have to do with you? You can experience it gracefully. Swami Sarvapriyananda, he said a joke. Um, 
something like this he said he was talking to in gangotri in the himalayas he was talking to a a monk and the monk said um before you learn this philosophy your uh your reaction to life is what it's always protest what and after you learn this philosophy your reaction to life is so what <laughs> so that's kind of the joke all right Let's get into it. The meat of the lecture, five arguments to prove to you why you do not need to heal and why you do not need to grow. Some of you have heard these arguments before. It's worth repeating. So the first argument today we'll do one of my favorites. It's from the Mandukya Karika by Gaurapada, one of the most hardcore non-dualist, probably around the eight, early 8th century or late 6th century. So Gaudapada in his text Mandukya Karika is offering a commentary on the Mandukya Upanishad and the Mandukya Upanishad makes the following claim you can experience categorically only three states of consciousness in fact Gaudapada goes further and says it's actually only two but for now let's say three states of consciousness the first is waking jagrat so hopefully this is your state right now i know some of you are dozing off I always make this joke Advaita Vedanta tends to take you out of the waking state <laughs> but hopefully a lot of you now are in the waking state jagrat and this state you know you experience yourself as this body this mind you have a name and you go about your life and you have certain problems and certain triumphs and that's your waking state then when you go to sleep tonight you will enter perhaps into swapna your dream state now in your dream state you completely uh, forget about your waking state you're perhaps a completely different person or if you're the same person you're in a completely different environment you now have dream problems you have dream friends and dream relatives maybe sort of modeled over your waking life but the experience of dream is categorically different now no matter how bad your nightmare was often you feel relieved when you wake up the next day because you realize oh it was just a dream You know there was something in you that was able to perceive waking as opposed to dream. So something in you was able to say this mode of consciousness is categorically different from that one. And now I can kind of breathe a sigh of relief. I didn't really die. I didn't really get killed. I didn't really uh see my house burned down. It was the dream. Now I'm here in this waking world. I feel relieved. Similarly the reverse is also true right if this waking world is horrific you can't wait to go to sleep you know because going to sleep often marks the end of all these problems no matter how bad your problems are in the waking life you usually leave them behind upon entering sleep you know now in the dream if you suddenly make uh you get a winning lottery ticket and you wake up you might be disappointed because you can't cash that dream lottery ticket in real life <laughs> But anyway, there are different lives. When you were in the dream, you really bought it. You really bought that you were this person in this life. And when you woke up from the dream, you realized, "Oh, no. I was never in the dream. The dream was in me. I emanated the dream with my own mind stuff." And so that brings me relief. Now the third state, so your jagrat, your waking state, then you have svapna, your dream state, and thirdly, you have uh shushupti, your deep sleep state. You call this the causal body. It's called the causal body because your waking life and your dreaming life are completely gone in this deep sleep state. You're not aware of either of those previous states, but the seeds of those states are still there. That's why you wake up from deep sleep. So even if you got the Pfizer vaccine and you slept for 48 hours, you will still wake up. Now, when you wake up, you're back to waking or back to dreaming. Now, The interesting thing is and here's the first insight when you were in deep sleep you as Joshua uh, wasn't present you as Ryan wasn't there you know you as the dream Ryan wasn't there but you still experienced it no that's spooky that should show you that Ryan is not the experiencer there is something else experiencing Ryan something else experiencing Ryan's dream and now this is the clincher there is something else experiencing the absence of ryan and the absence of dream ryan so your awareness seems to persist even in the absence of your waking self your dream self and your no self of deep sleep 
it's able to perceive all three. Now, this is the insight. Waking, dreaming, and deep sleep are three states of consciousness. But if you look very closely, you will see there is a fourth. And it's not literally the fourth, because it's not like fourth apart from the three. It's the one that makes the three possible, and it's called Turiya. Turiya literally means the fourth. Um, and as one Swami said, that's only because you're counting from Maya. You know, you're counting from this side of the fence. But actually, it's not the fourth. You can't number it, because it is the very reality of those three. You know, so we'll go a little further. Gaurapada says, okay, waking, dreaming, deep sleep. But even waking and deep uh, dreaming, those two aren't that different. You know, think about your memories now. They're rather dreamlike, are they not? I mean, the, the feeling of having something happen to you in the past is not that different from remembering a dream that you had last night. And there are many, many studies in modern Western psychology, like the Loftbus paradigm studies, that show us how illusory memories are. People often misremember. You can implant memories. You know, these memories are a very shaky thing. So for some reason, you are clinging on to this narrative of life, but that narrative is a smokescreen. It's as subtle and elusive as last night's dream. You know, how interesting. Yes, and Alicia says, sometimes I even remember dreams as real life and can't tell them apart. <laughs> and Morgan, we will get to the healing and what healing is in yoga. Yes. Yes. So sometimes we, you know, remember things worse than they were. Sometimes we remember things better than they were, but we almost never remember things exactly as they were. You know, so the point that Gaudapada is making is really, as long as you're ignorant of your true self, there's only two states, deep sleep and dreaming slash waking. <laughs> but the reality is the fourth, the state beyond all of that, that somehow is aware of all three states. Now the Mandukya Karika is saying that is you. Tattvamasi. You are not Emily. Never were you Emily. Nor are you Emily's dream and nor are you even the absence of Emily. You are the one who is aware of all three. You know. Now if you knew definitively this fact, you relax because you realize that what's going on in the dream will, like the mists of England, dissipate in the first sunrise on that London morning. When you wake up, it's gone. You know, the dream of your waking life will also, like smoke before a sunrise, dissipate. You know, and so you start to become, I suppose, less attached to the things that arise and fade away in your life, knowing that they're not actually happening to you. Maybe they're happening to Westifer, but you are the one who is aware of Westifer. You are not Westifer, you know? And whatever's happening to Westifer, all of that's going to change when Westifer dreams, you know? I know Westifer is a bit of a lucid dreamer. He's quite advanced in his meditation practice, so he might not be the best example here. <laughs> mm. So that's the first argument. It's the Turiya argument, or the argument of the state behind waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. Now, let's take the second argument. The second argument is subtler. This is an argument about change. Notice, in order for you to be aware of change, you must be apart from it. So, if there was a river, think about the river flowing now. If you were a particle of water in that river, you wouldn't realize that you were moving at all. You know, you would feel like you were static because you were part of the flow. Newton makes this point. The laws of physics in a train moving at a uniform motion, you know, is the same as being in uh, inert standing place. Inertia works for a moving object and for a non-moving object. So here's the thing. According to the laws of physics, you can never know whether you're moving or stationary except by comparison to some other thing. So whatever experiment you do with your tennis balls on the train, the same experiments will, same results will obtain when you're standing on the platform. So which is moving now? The train or the platform? From the point of view of Newtonian physics, whether you say the train is moving and the world is still, or whether you say the world is moving and the train is still, you're both correct. You know, strictly speaking, from the point of Newtonian mechanics. Einstein goes further and says, yes, actually, space-time, all of that is moving around one constant, which is light. 
But notice this, in order to discern movement, in order to make the claim that something is relative, meaning something is changing, you must have a vantage point that is apart from that change. So the only way you can recognize that the river is flowing is if you were standing on the bank of the river. Do you see? You don't feel the earth moving at all. But if you could somehow leave this solar system and look at it from apart, you will notice all the planets are wheeling about in their ellipses. Do you see? As long as you're part of the earth, you don't know you're moving. Once you step apart from it, you notice change. Okay, if you can agree to this, we're going to come upon a very startling discovery. Okay, so hold on to this fact. In order to perceive change, you must be not the change. You must be apart from that change. Yes or no? Okay, now watch this. Waking changes into dreaming. Dreaming changes into sleeping. Your waking life is always changing. Your dreaming life changes even more. And even the relative changelessness of deep sleep also changes when you wake up and go back into it. How are you able to track all that change? Clearly because you are not of it. You are apart from your waking, dreaming, and deep sleep lives. Yes. That's the clincher. And uh, we can go further. Look at your experience right now. You looked different five years ago. And I know a lot of you are very seasoned Hatha yogis. So for me to tell you that you will look different in 20 years is probably incorrect. Emily is going to look the way she does now, 50 years from now. That's indubitably true. But at some point, you will notice physical change. You know, there will be some gray hair, some lines uh, around the eyes, you know. Steven Tyler sings about it and Dream On. Your body is changing. It's changing slowly, but it's changing. Somehow, when you look at a picture, your baby photo, you're like, oh, that's me. That's little Joshua. I'm sorry I'm picking on Joshua Westerfer and Ryan a lot. It's just that you're on my screen. <laughs> Let me click around. <laughs> but yeah, I'm looking at you. There's Taylor. Yes, I'm looking at Taylor now. <laughs> Taylor presumably was very different when as a child. I don't know, assuming there. And when you're 80, Taylor, hopefully, you know, you'll have your long Gandalf white hair. I don't know. Um, telling the Balrog, you shall not pass and leading Aragorn to uh, victory. Now, presumably, you're able to make sense of all this change because you are not it. So you're not the body. If you notice change in the body, you cannot be the body. That seems to be a logical conclusion of our argument so far. Okay, so you're not the body. Well, maybe you're your energy, your moods. Ah, but your moods change a lot, no? Your energy is changing from moment to moment. If you are able to notice that your energy is changing, you are not the energy. You are not your moods. The mind, more than the body or the energy, changes dramatically. From moment to moment, the mind is changing. You know, it's like that Katy Perry song, you change your mind like a girl changes clothes, quite sexist of you, Katy. But no, you see, for your uh, perception that the mind is changing requires that you are not the mind. What is your personality? Is it not a construct in the mind, a conglomerate of thoughts handed to you by your parents, guardian, society, thoughts that you clung to? as you continued along your life, your personality exists entirely in the mind. But since you notice your personality changing, ah, now we are confronted with the startling fact that you are not your personality. Ooh. Tough one, huh? You are not the body. You are not your energy. You are not your mind. And uh, this is from the Taitriya Upanishad you know, from second or first millennium India, this argument was made. You cannot be the body. You cannot be your pranomaya kosha or energy body. You can't be your manomaya kosha or mental body. You can't be your buddha, uh, vijnana maya kosha, your intellect. Nor can you even be your ananda maya kosha, your causal body. You're none of those because you're able to witness all of them changing. Yes? Okay, so that's the second argument. Now I'm going to run a third argument by you, and this argument is incredibly subtle, so follow this carefully. It's a little bit technical. It's a, a very philosophically charged argument. So it goes like this. Change equals unreality. You might ask, 
Why is it the case that just because something changes, that's enough for me to say it's unreal? You might ask that and you would be right to ask that. Just because something is changing doesn't mean it's unreal, right? Okay, the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, famously said, Anityam Anityam Sarva Manityam. Changing, changing, all things are changing. Exactly, Vanessa. Therefore, Shunyam Shunyam Sarvam Shunyam. Void, void, all things are void. Because things are changing, they are devoid of their reality. Now, what a startling claim. Just because if something is changing, does it necessarily mean that it isn't real? Okay, now I'm going to go one step further. Not only am I going to tell you that you are not your mind and body, I'm also going to attempt to show you through argument that your mind and body aren't even real. (laughs) So let's see how we can do this. Okay, we've established thus far that the mind and body change. We've established that in order to be aware of that change, you must be apart from it. So perhaps now you can appreciate that you are not your mind and body. Yes, that's Sankhya. Sankhya philosophy is content with just this conclusion. Knowing this to be the case, you can accept the reality of the mind and body, but you can just kind of step back away from all the suffering contained therein. You know, Advaita Vedanta takes it one step further, and even the Buddha takes this step, when we claim that changing equals unreality. So let's talk about what unreality means, and we're going to define it now. Unreality means in terms of non-existence, meaning it doesn't exist intrinsically. Existence is not a part of it. So to prove this... (laughs) Yes, John Locke, exactly. And Morgan, there's so much good stuff here. I'm going to return to it all in, our, the, in a few moments and hopefully answer. So we're coming now to the third argument and we're coming to the end of our lecture. Let's get through it. Now, there are two things that, uh, or we could, let me back up. There are two kinds of properties that a thing can have. One is an intrinsic property, meaning that thing by very definition has that property. You wouldn't call it that thing if it didn't have that property. That's what it means by intrinsic property. But it also has borrowed properties. So it has properties that are not intrinsic to it, that it comes to take on uh, by borrowing it from some other thing. Okay, so I'll give you an example. Say you're boiling water. Uh, Swami Sarva Priyananda gave this example at one of our classes. He said, it's a great example, you're boiling water. You pour the water into a pot and you put it on your stove and you light the gas stove and the fire comes out. Now, you're boiling the water and after two minutes, the water is boiled. Heat is not an intrinsic property of water. You know, water can be without the heat. Before you turned on the gas stove, the water was cold. When you turned on the gas stove, the water became hot. And when you turn off the gas stove, the water will become cold again. There was some change of heat in the water. So far, so good, right? So where did the water get its heat from? It borrowed it from the pan. And where did the pan get its heat from? It borrowed it from the fire. Where did the fire get its heat from? No. Heat is intrinsic to fire. Heat is the very definition of fire. There is no fire without the heat. Um, Heat is part of what it means to be fire. So we can say that heat is an intrinsic property of fire, but a borrowed property of the pan and of the water. The pan was cool before the heat, and it will be cool after the gas stove is turned off. Yes or no? Okay. Here's the conclusion then. Your body comes into being and goes out of being. You know, the body can die, the body can be born. Yes. The mind can exist, it can, you know, be with the body. But when the body dies, the mind dies. Or maybe, you know, we go into different realms. If you're a Vajrayana Buddhist, the mind continues its journey, but it changes. In order for you to perceive the change of existence, here's the thing, the body didn't exist, then it existed, and then it stops existing. You can conclude that existence itself, the very thing known as existence, is not an intrinsic property of the body. It's a borrowed property. And you might ask, where did existence get borrowed from? 
And if you follow that line of reasoning, you will realize that nothing has intrinsic existence that also has change. A bit heady, but I hope that you can appreciate that point. Change is epitomizing the fact that things borrow existence from other things, else there wouldn't be that change, you know? So it shows you that the body and mind lack existence by virtue of their change. That's the point the Buddha was trying to make. So changing, changing, all things are changing equals empty, empty, all things are empty. Ooh, startling claim. Advaita Vedanta has thus far shown you that your body and mind are not only separate from you, they don't really even exist, you know? Okay, kind of startling. I'll give you one last argument and then we'll close for today. Mm. And I like this argument a lot. This argument's very close to my heart. It's called the essence of all things argument. I know I said I was going to do five, but I'm content. Let's just settle with four. <laughs> now the fourth argument, it's called the essence of all things argument. And some of you have heard it before. Now see this Ayurvedic copper water bottle. I ask you the question, what is the essence of Ayurvedic copper water bottle? Yes, the nightly advertisement. Ayurvedic copper water bottle. This lecture brought to you by Ayurvedic copper water bottles, TM. <laughs> if any brands are out there, this is the time for the brand endorsement. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I won't do it, honestly. <laughs> now, um, unless I like it, love. <laughs> now, um, here's the argument. You might think that there is such a thing in the world as Ayurvedic copper water bottles. This concept. Ayurvedic copper water bottle. Okay, if I were to ask you, what is the essence of Ayurvedic copper water bottle? Meaning, what is the one thing that you need to have in order to say Ayurvedic copper water bottle? You will realize that it is the very shape, texture, color, and sensation of the Ayurvedic copper water bottle. So unless I encounter a certain sensory event in the world, there will never be the emergent concept, Ayurvedic copper water bottle. You know? So the concept, Ayurvedic copper water bottle, I've said this so many times now, it's like a tongue twister, depends entirely on the sense event corresponding to that label. So the label itself is devoid of reality apart from this copper water bottle. And I can prove it to you. Watch. Is there here, apart from the sensation, such a thing as Ayurvedic copper water bottle? You might say yes, in memory, in concept. Okay, fine. But I would like for you to engage with this argument on the basis of perception here and now, without an appeal to memory. We know how problematic that is. And without an appeal to belief or dogma. This tradition asks you to investigate your awareness here and now. You know, it doesn't like beliefs or dogmas. It wants you to investigate scientifically this observation. So when you see the object, you say, ah, I know that. That's an Ayurvedic copper. Some of you might never have realized that such a thing exists in the world. It's actually much better for your water. Yogically, we like to keep water in this Ayurvedic vessel. It soaks up the vibes, if you will. But this isn't about the bottle. It's about the fact that if I take the bottle away, there no longer exists Ayurvedic copper water bottle as a property separate from the bottle. You see, so the essence of the concept is the sense event. Now, watch this. What is the essence of the sense event? Thank you, Jana. Sleep well and take care. And we'll finish this very shortly. But what is the essence of the sense event, meaning the hardness, the shape, the color, you know, the, you know, all the stuff that constitutes the sensation of this thing. What's the essence of that? And the essence is seeing. Without seeing, there couldn't be the sense event. And you can very easily experiment with this. Just close the eyes. <laughs> it's gone. And we can ask, what is the essence of seeing? And now you alight upon the answer. Like a butterfly alighting upon the most fragrant flower, you alight upon the one ultimate insight of this tradition. The essence of all concepts 
is sense data. The essence of all sense data is the organ of seeing. And the essence of all perception is awareness itself. And that awareness is you. That awareness is more you than any other thing that you can be aware of is you. And that awareness is the one thing that you can be sure exists. It's the one thing that right here and right now you can verify. And if you can imbibe this idea to the very fibers of your being, you will realize here and now that you do not exist in the world. The world exists in you. You are not in the mind and the mind is not in the body. The mind is in you and the body is in the mind. So you emanated your body, your world from your awareness. And not only that, this world is an appearance. It's an illusion. It's a seemingness within awareness. Only awareness exists. So the statement that you are God and God is the all is incorrect. The statement is only God is, nothing else exists, and you are it. Do you see? And the only reason you suffer is because you perceive yourself to be the mind, the body. And you perceive yourself to be an individual in a world of other individuals. Some of them are allies. Some of them are enemies. You feel yourself to be a separate self moving around the world. And as such, there is suffering. Because you take everything to be much more real than in actuality it is. So once you uncover with the light of your own immediate perception, this awareness that you can cultivate through argument, through reasoning, but also through meditation, you will realize, oh, the world is in me. I'm not in the world. The world is in me. And what will this do to you? As we said in the beginning of class, this will free you of fear. The common wish to someone learning this philosophy is, may you realize this and may you become fearless. You know, that's the ultimate promise of this philosophy. And from this fearlessness comes relaxation. So does this feel like dissociation? Hardly. Here's the difference and we'll close on this. Dissociation is when you say, I am not the mind and I am not the body because you're so attached to the mind and body that the suffering of the mind and body are so personal so acute that you cannot take it anymore and you must run away from it. This dissociation experience of numbing yourself to the mind and body is symptomatic of over-identification with the mind and body. You know, so the person who's always putting themselves down, the person who's always, I guess, self-deprecatory or something, is often the ultimate narcissist, right? It's the person who takes themselves so seriously that they can't get over themselves. And that dissociation comes from too much suffering. And it feels different. It feels kind of lifeless. It feels deadened. It feels stifling. Because in that dissociation, there is a strong identification. Now, here's the difference. Now, it's not that you're rejecting the mind and body. That's my mind. That's my body. I'm going to stand apart from it. It's not that. It's more the case that you are realizing the mind and body do not exist apart from you. So it's not dissociating. There is no other. You're just realizing that the mind and body exist as an appearance within you. That appearance lacks intrinsic reality. And therefore, you don't have to take it that seriously. As a consequence, all your work should become play. If you make a lot of money, haha, dream money for dream mind and dream body. If you find yourself in financial ruin, haha, dream ruin for dream mind and dream body. Does this feel like escapism? Hardly. Because of your fearlessness, because of your intense love for everything that you now see as part of yourself, it turns into intense activity, creative activity. But no longer are you reaching out to take things to bring into you, knowing yourself to be the all in which things exist, you instead desire to give. So you're still doing stuff. It's just that the texture has changed. See, so that's why it's not dissociation. Without the attachment to the mind and body, you are finally able to savor the mind and body. It's no longer that scary. So does this mean you will not feel grief? No, 
there will be intense grief in your life. Make no mistake. Living in this world, you will suffer loss. And we don't want to think about that, but the people you love will die. And you might have to watch some of that, and there will be grief. Does that mean you don't feel the grief of loss? No, hardly not. You will feel that grief. In the body, there is pain. There is disease to be had. As you age, as the body deteriorates, you will feel aches and pains in joints. You know, there are diseases that karmically you might have in store for you. Let's be real. It's not that you won't feel that pain. It's not that you won't feel the grief of loss. The only difference is now it's no longer suffering. You are no longer oppressed by the things that happen to you because they are not happening to you. They are happening in you. Now you are able to experience the grief of losing a loved one, not as a traumatic suffering event, but instead as a beautiful, heart-melting, vulnerable event in which you come in touch with life. The life that is no longer oppressive. The life that is beautiful. You know, you start to feel the pain in the body as your very own aliveness. Ah, how exquisite that there is this sharp stabbing pain in my knee. You don't even say that anymore. So in closing, let's end with this idea. Once you come upon this concept, and once you turn this concept into an understanding, and once you internalize that understanding into a lived reality, your entire languaging system will change. No longer will you say, I am happy, or I am sad. In fact, all I am statements that are followed by some noun will be rendered meaningless to you. You will realize that I am, full stop, is the only statement you're able to make. And now you will change your languaging. So if you want to practice this, one way is to practice it on the level of speech. Instead of referring to things as my pain or my sadness, instead say it as, there is sadness in this body. There is anguish in this mind. Ah, you know, somebody blames you, say, Nish is rather distressed by that accusation. And watch, watch the drunken monkey Nish in his game of trying to defend himself from said accusation. Similarly, if somebody praises you, watch the drunken monkey Nish delight in the praise. (laughs) And in closing, let's say, Upon understanding that you yourself are the awareness, understanding that waking, deep sleep, and dream happen within you, life ought to be graceful, life ought to be effortless. And so wishing that for all of you today, let us close um, with this thought. How do you need to heal? Healing is the mind, healing is the body, no? Having proven to you now in four arguments that you are not the mind, you are not the body, How will you heal? The mind and body carry out actions, but you are not the mind and you are not the body. So what yoga do you really need to practice? Now, here's the interesting thing. Once you become relaxed, fearless, and loving, the mind and body, knowing them to be not yourself, start to reflect this relaxation and they start to heal, quote unquote, all on their own. You know, the body becomes strong and supple since a lot of your illness in the body has mental or energetic roots. Your mind starts to stress less, starts to have less anxiety, less anguish. And naturally, you start to look like a balanced person. You know, you react less, you freak out less, your interpersonal relationships start to bloom. So to the outsider, it seems like you are healing. Your body is getting stronger. Your mind is getting fresher and more intelligent. Your memory is becoming sharper. You can memorize whole texts. You become a charming dinner guest. You know, all of this seems to be happening, but it's not you that's healing because you never needed to heal. And there, let us close. So we'll, we'll close with, a, with an Om, as we always do. You're welcome to join us in this chant of Om. And uh, we'll chant the Gayatri Mantra one time. And the Gayatri Mantra translates to, May you forever be imbibed with this awareness. You know, may each of your thoughts be graced with the sunlight wisdom 
of this awareness. May your whole life be an expression of this internalized insight. All right. Tatsavitor Varenyam Bargo Devasya Dimahi Dio Yona Pracho Peace, peace, peace. Thank you all for being my teachers.